The story you are about to hear was written by Scottish author Andrew Murray Scott. In Sharing, a hospital worker suffers the torment of knowing his girlfriend has another lover. Sharing by Andrew Murray Scott Stephen stared out of the window at the maternity wards where lights were coming on. Twenty past, the hour hand just leaving the four. He glanced down at the forms he was slowly completing, picked up his pen. He felt like bursting into tears. Think it's going to rain? Looks like it. On the other side of the room, Alison, the clerical officer, paused in her knitting. She put down her needles and wool and squinted at her tiny wristwatch. The clock on the wall was five minutes slow. Clock's wrong, he said though they had known this since the morning. Alison lit a cigarette and tossed the spent match into the metal wastebasket. So you're going out tonight, she said, smiling. Another girlfriend? Anyone I'd know? Her lips kissed the filter of her cigarette. The stubs in the glass ashtray bore, he had previously noted, identical lipstick traces. Mm, no, he said, bent at his work. So you won't tell, huh? Come on, what's the goss? Where are you taking her? Just a drink, he volunteered finally. One of the telephones rang. Stephen grabbed it before it had time to ring twice, thinking it might be her. It was George Bennett, the deputy administrator. Stephen, I know it's late, but could you spare a few minutes? I want to go over the new sickness benefit procedure. OK, be right over. He replied to Alison's mute inquiry with grunts. Bennett, I'll be a few minutes. Keep up the hard work. He left the office gratefully and crossed the reception area. There were no outpatients in the Woodfield wing on a Friday afternoon, but outside in the car park he saw the rear view of an ancient schizophrenic plodding towards the front gates. Claude, he shouted, here, at the sound of his name. Claude stopped, escaped forgotten and shuffled back, frail in over-large, overwashed pyjamas which overlapped his feet and hands. Claude, they want to see you upstairs, old chap. Who? Claude mugged, his mouth a plug of wrinkled skin, eyes blank and chronically searching. Josie, up on the ward, they've been looking for you, old sport. Now why don't you go up to the ward for a nice cup of tea? What? Claude peered at him, mouth-chawing air. Up to the ward, for a cup of tea. Cup of tea? Yes, on the ward. Off you go. Claude shambled off towards the stairs, and Stephen found himself wondering for the nth time when the authorities were going to get around to authorising his removal to a long-stay psychogeriatric place. Harmless, just like me, thought me without the salary. The other side of the sanity counter, by the grace of God. He continued towards the administration building. Two years now he'd been at St Martha's, a minor cog in the great wheel. A few drips of rain spattered the tarmac. Ahead and all around, lighted windows revealed the doll's house activities and wards. People at work, tired-out workers, accomplishing the business of dying middle-class doctors patching up the proles to get them fit for the treadmill. In there with sickness and flowers, old men coughing, a steady flow of visitors, inhalations and exhalations, admissions, discharges, the creaking of axles, lubrication. He heard the tin clatter of dinner trolleys being brought onto the wards, and in the near distance an ambulance siren swirling and swelling nearer, RTA coming into casualty. He felt his tears welling up, columns of water suspended vertically in the sinus tubes, 
He heard the tin clatter of dinner trolleys being brought onto the wards, and in the near distance an ambulance siren swirling and swelling nearer. RTA coming into casualty. Any second now it would fall around him. He didn't want to think about her. There should be, he thought to himself, a radio station broadcasting nothing but round-the-clock weeping as a form of therapy for the human race. He reached the main corridor and walked past the dining room. He remembered meeting her in this corridor. He had seen her before, only briefly in the main office. She was twenty, had a short, neat hairstyle, a pretty pert face with a dazzling, eager smile, enormous, limpid eyes, something kittenish about her, feline, a domesticated jaguar. He had been unusually nonchalant, quite out of character, and had brought her off successfully. He usually felt grubby, grey, devoid of personality, almost emasculated, but she had come out with him for a drink at lunchtime. He had been surprised at the ease with which he had handled the situation. Then there had been a wonderful evening, after which he could not have returned home, even if she had wanted him to. After an evening like that, to return to his flat would have been too depressing. He was an outsider in the city, distant from family and friends. Loneliness had taken root in him over the two years. He mostly stayed in during the evenings because he could not bear to be seen out on his own, even in London where no one knew him. The evenings out were, consequently, precious events. They had walked into an ordinary pub and found it full of madness and jubilant anarchy. A jazz band playing sing-along standards, a bunch of weird poets and impressionists, stand-up comics and men dressed in ballet tights, Nazi helmets and evening jackets, interrupting each other, singing rude ditties. Poets read number poems made up of only numbers. Bearded men with painted faces danced on the tables in heavy boots, with carnations between their teeth. They had walked from the Truscott Arms, dazed and dazzled, hand in hand, and sat on her floor drinking coffee, watching her portable TV. And when he kissed her, the first time, it had blossomed despite the steady boyfriend she really liked. John. He hated the name. Hated being first reserve, her bit on the side. And there was no sign she'd ever chucked John in, as she had promised that first night. He climbed the stairs, wearily to the main office, patting his hair, smoothing the edges, this cog grinding along. What kind of future? An older cog? A pensioned-off cog? Moving slower in the same concentric circles. In an hour and a half, the London weekend would start. He'd see her for a few hours, and then, as he passed the door of the main office, he heard a burst of hilarity. He fancied he could distinguish her laugh from the others. He knocked on George Bennett's door. Ah, Stephen, wait a minute. After the gloom of the stairwell, the office was brightly lit by neon strip lights, supported by chains from the ornate ceiling. Bennett was scribbling furiously on a pad, telephone cradled at his ear by the pressure of his shoulder. Even he was a cog albeit a bearded cog. Stephen had tried on occasions to grow a beard, but always gave up in embarrassment when it did not really grow in. He worked in the midst of girls, and his appearance was constantly under criticism. He was the only male under 35 in the Woodfield Wing psychiatric unit. Right, thanks for putting me in the picture, Roger, Bennett said. Fine, bye. Bennett replaced the receiver, turned to Stephen, and reached for his pipe in the same movement. Notting Hill Carnival, he explained. Got a special meeting on medical cover. Stephen coughed politely. Oh. Right, Steve. The new procedure for sickness certification shouldn't affect your department that much, but I thought I'd better go over it with you. Stephen found, after several minutes, that his mind had wandered off into little clouds of nothingness, drifting. He didn't know where his mind went when his concentration waned. Sometimes he knew the places it visited, but often it just drifted away, 
and he wasn't thinking about anything, not a thing. Some place he'd never seen, one splash of rain hit the pane, equidistant from the mullions, one raindrop, and still the downpour did not come. He remembered what she'd said on the phone, and knew her boss had probably been in the room. Change of plan, I'll meet you after work, would that be okay? Yes, she'd reply faintly, okay, same place, front desk, that all right? Right, fine, thank you, she'd said, as if he was merely a work colleague. But he'd slept with her. Was that all it was? It was as if she could give him all but could not give him everything. He didn't just want all of her some of the time. He wanted her every moment. Life was so bloody complicated. Bennett finished speaking. He hadn't heard any of it. And when does this come into effect, he asked. Bennett frowned and removed his pipe from his beard. Well, as I just said, Stephen, he repeated heavily, it's in effect now or should be. The department authorised self-certification on the 17th July. Could you wait here for a moment? I'll be right back. He left the room. Bennett was in his mid-thirties, a comfortable, full-bottomed figure, well-settled with a pretty wife in banking. A supporter of social democrats, whose wife was, he'd often remarked woefully, something of a Thatcherite. And when lying in bed before dawn, she'd told him about losing her virginity at fourteen on a bathroom floor, he'd felt like getting up and leaving. And worse was to follow. At a party, she'd let herself be taken by two boys at the same time. He felt ill thinking about it. In some ways, it thrilled him. He remembered how she loved him to touch her. She had lain back and let him stroke her for hours. He had been afraid of hurting her at first, but there was no doubt that she enjoyed it. The thought had often occurred to him that if she was double-crossing her boyfriend with him, she may be double-crossing him with someone else. That was something he'd never be able to prove or disprove. Bennett returned. Right, Steve, here you are. I got my secretary to photocopy the new procedure. You've met her, haven't you? Susan? Stuck in the dream of her, Stephen hesitated over her name. My secretary, you know, big, and Bennett cupped his hands obscenely at his chest. Oh yes, he said meekly. See you next week, have a good weekend. Same to you. He walked back reluctantly to the psychiatric unit. Pat was sitting on his desk, legs sprawled over his DHSS reports. They hardly looked up as he came in. He pinned the procedure on the notice board and put his paperback and spectacles in his jacket pocket. Pat slid off the desk and smirked, knowing that he had seen her pants in that careless leg movement. Neither of the girls fancied him, though the Woodfield wing, stuffed mainly by females, was a snake pit of unsatisfied lust, sinuous and tormenting by day and night. The rain cracked down suddenly onto the tarmac, onto the roofs of cars, cascading in knife-edged torrents. He ran to the vestibule and took out his cigarettes. He stood watching the water lancing down. He remembered a school outing to Gullane Sands, torrential rain and being in the beach hut alone with Margaret Airely, frightening intensity of being alone for the first time with a girl he fancied, being magnified, racked up several million neuron points by the water. Her blonde hair wet, the steam, drops streaming down the sleeves of blue nylon cagoules, looking out at the sand dunes. Eight years ago, electric, discharging in a kiss. Now a low mist gave the high walls of windows an eerie look. The Woodfield Wing, Department of Psychiatry. Two years he'd been in this job. People burst in, drenched, clothes sticking to their skin. Rain loosened the molecules, shook out the possibilities of hilarity and human contact in face of the oncoming. What? Poetic? Here? He saw Annette, Susan's workmate, scurrying by under an umbrella. He didn't speak. Susan had said they should keep their liaison as secret as possible to avoid gossip. 
and he'd agreed. Now he waited, anticipated. At twenty past, climbed the stairs to the main office and timidly turned the handle. Locked, she'd already gone. He ran lightly through the hospital and out by the front gate onto the Harrow Road, blinking water out of his eyes, oblivious to how wet he got. Clear of the gates, he slowed to an anxious jog. He couldn't get there soon enough. Rang the bell of her bedsit at the outside door on Sutherland Avenue. He felt betrayed and frightened, his whole life depending on her. After a minute or two, she opened the door. His heart was fluctuating wildly. Is it all right? You must think I'm so stupid, she said. Stupid. Stephen tried to read her face for signs. What do you mean? Not meeting you. I honestly couldn't be bothered waiting. I came just straight home. I'm tired. Sorry. She opened the door wider to let him in, out of the rain, into the hall, into the door of her room, inside, but not safe. Far from safe. What do you want to do? he asked, scared at how much her reply might matter to him. Don't know, she said, curling up in the corner of her bed. He looked at her. Eat? he asked. Me? I'm starving. I could fancy a Chinese. He considered the implications of this. I know a really cheap one in Soho. I don't know if I could be bothered, she said. There's a carry-out Chinese round the corner, the Hasty Tasty. It's not bad. I want to watch Coronation Street and Crossroads. Ah, he said, laughing as everything suddenly became clear to him. Inside he felt glum. Did he really fancy her? He studied her face, the dazzling wide smile, huge panda eyes, soft lash, pixie ears with blue plastic earrings, soft dark hair. She made a characteristic, zestful shrug of her shoulders, snaking her lovely neck. He loved that movement, so playful, so kittenish. She was vivacious, zesty, alive, everything clicked. I want my Susie, he said pathetically, laying his head on her lap. She laughed and rummaged her fingers in his long hair. Okay, he said, after a few tremulous moments. You win. I'll go out for the carry-out. What do you want? I have a menu, she giggled smile bright as oxyacetylene. Out along the street, other streets, rain hardly noticed, the interminable queue, the poor English and laborious pencil, all of it just precious seconds, minutes away from Susan. After they had eaten, they drank gin and tonic, sprawled on a large cushion at the side of the bed, watching TV. They kissed and he unbuttoned her blouse, unhooked her bra, massaged and kissed, down her spine from the nape of her neck to her bottom. They made love from the side, half-dressed, in front of the TV set, with the sound turned down. Every time he moved, she shuddered, her breasts wobbling. She arched her head back as if her neck was broken, stretched out, taut under him, every muscle straining tight for him. Afterwards, she jumped up, lithe and pink, and pulled the curtains, turned off the light, and they got under the duvet of her single bed. Daydreams from the edge of his mind, living in cold-water flats together in New York, Paris, Madrid, holding each other in foreign places. He talked brilliantly, painting verbal pictures. Am I boring you? he asked, much later. A question drawled in the darkness. Her voice was dry, disembodied, pleasure from inches away. It's lovely. I like it. Your voice is nice. You're so nice. Was it an act? he wondered. Or how much of it was an act? She would know instinctively how to keep him happy. Him and John both. How was it with John? What are you doing the rest of the weekend? Were the lazy, nonchalant words spinning out into the hollow darkness. Her answer was a long time coming. Tomorrow we're going to a party in the evening. 
There's a barbecue in the afternoon. Nice. What are you doing on Sunday? I have to meet friends, Paula and Jan. We're going to see a play. That was it then. A weekend over. We felt tangled up in jealousy, bitterness, depression, sick self-pity. It couldn't matter to her as it mattered to him, despite what she said. After a while she asked. He had begun to wonder if she would ask. What are you doing this weekend? He had his answer ready. Nothing planned, pub probably. And inside he was thinking, like hell. He hated pubs where he knew no one and never went on his own. It would be miserable this weekend, boring and empty. If only she'd chuck John. He leaned over and switched on the light and reached for his cigarettes. He placed another cigarette into his sour, heavy dough face. He wanted to stop smoking, hated cigarettes. I feel so bad, she said, nestling into the warm space as he slid down in the bed, his head stuck up against the headboard. About what? he asked dully. About this, being here with you. It'd be so much easier if you were a bastard. Bastard. He loved the flat sound, her Mancunian accent. He handed his cigarette down to her lips. She drew on it. What does Paula think about it? She thinks it's great. She thinks I should enjoy myself. She's a little bit angry, no, not angry, jealous at me having more than my fair share. He was weak, a loser, a fall guy, every girl's hero but not the one they wanted to stay around for. He wasn't quite handsome, he could be witty, he had his sensitivity. He was so damn sensitive, he burst into tears when they said no. Twenty-four, twenty-four years old, unsettled, depressed, achieving what he wanted to then finding out what he wanted was not what he had achieved. Rain spattered uselessly on the street, outside her open window, behind the curtains, the music of run-off into drains. They drowsed in the night, voices rising into ever more wild fantasies. Rain beat steadily on the windowsill like a metronome. They drowsed in the night, voices rising into ever more wild fantasies. Rain beat steadily on the windowsill like a metronome. He imagined the steaming wet street outside like the set of a film noir. He remembered having a pint with Wendy in the production village at Cricklewood, all manufactured fakery, buckets of water, two-dimensional. I snore, she told him, and I talk to myself. I'll tape it and use it as evidence. He kissed her behind her ear. He could feel the sticky, loose mass of her breasts against his chest. They lay for hours in uncomfortable positions, until it looked as though they would never sleep. He was too tired to sleep, too enervated. In the morning, she got up early and bathed. She made tea and they breakfasted off stale prawn crackers and a couple of cigarettes. The sun filtered through the curtains and there was the ever hopeful prattle of early morning DJs. I have to go soon, she said gently, but you're welcome to stay. And why would you want to? No, I'll go when you go, he said. Just then a cat appeared through the open window between the curtains, a beautiful black and white cat with a bell round its neck. It poised itself on the chair near the bed and watched them with a keen interest. Susan lifted it up and held it between her breasts. It's the upstairs neighbours, I think. Watch, it'll scratch you, he warned. No, she won't. Will you, Kitty? I've never been scratched in my life. Stephen rolled out of bed at last and dressed. It was a sunny morning. That made it seem not so bad. He kissed her. Then the cat, lounging on the windowsill disinterestedly, saw him off the premises.
Shearing was read by Andrew Murray Scott. If you enjoyed this story, you can listen to more of Andrew Murray Scott's story podcasts on Telling You Stories. You could also visit his website www.andrewmurrayscott.scott or his author's page on amazon.com to find out more about his published books. Thank you for listening.